Good morning, everyone. Oh, what a privilege it is to be here worshiping with all of you. Oh, man, this is just a great morning. And I, I was just, I was sitting here reflecting on what God's done in this church, and just even with our worship team and Clint's leadership and everything. Just so cool. So, yeah, what a blessing. Uh, if you uh, don't have a Bible, uh, raise your hand. Uh, Charlie will get one to you. Put your hand up. Something I always, I don't know why I forget this, but it's, it's actually, I put it in my notes actually right there to remind myself to have, to ask if anybody needs a Bible. So if you need a Bible, um, and if you don't own a Bible, keep the one we give you. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said, if you wish to know God, you must know his word. If you wish to perceive his power, you must see how he worketh by his word. If you wish to know his purpose before it actually is brought to pass, you can only discover it by his word. And so we want you to have a Bible and read it as often as possible. In your Bibles, if you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Is it warm enough out there for everybody? Is it good? just don't know if I need to dial that outdoor thermostat up. Luke 7, 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment standing behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, saying to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. Verse 41, A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they, could not pay the, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss from the time I came in, and she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who's forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Our good God, we give you thanks for this morning. You have given for us to gather to worship with one another and with your church around the world. Lord, be present with all believers as we come together in your name. 
God, be in our midst as we seek to hear your voice and to be transformed through your word. Show us who you are and humble us to see our great need for your grace and forgiveness. Make us holy as we receive the scriptures. God, we ask that your spirit would join with us right now to reveal your truth through the Bible, which gives us knowledge of you and your good character. We give this time over to you and open our hearts to your voice. In the name of our Lord Jesus, amen. When we preach on the Pharisees, we often present them as the opposition. Oh, look at those bad guys rejecting Jesus and judging one another. Well, I was at a funeral this week, and I ran into a former student of mine who's now a, a pastor at that church, which is where I had served many years ago as a junior high leader. And we covered a number of topics as we caught up and came around to a time when he and the senior pastor's son and some other uh, kids in that group uh, were middle schoolers. And I shared how deeply ashamed that I am at how I presented the gospel as this list of legalistic, pharisaical rules and lifestyles. He chuckled and said, dude, that was the whole church back then. Which is why I think, honestly, the parents loved me so much. Even though I was a horrible example, I was a horrible leader, and frankly, a horrible Christian because I didn't understand grace in any meaningful way. Parents don't want to see their kids forgiven of harmful sins. They don't want their kids to need that forgiveness in the first place. And living a strictly limited lifestyle, as long as they don't fall off the horse, can keep us from the dangers of many temptations. The problem is that we tend to take our own guardrails and then we see them as how God has called all Christians to live. And that's legalism and that's what I taught. And those Christians who didn't live that way were looked down upon even when they weren't crossing the line into anything that the Bible actually calls sin more than the people that were looking down on them. And that's what the Pharisees had done. They had a strict set of rules that would prevent them from wandering into sin. But a violation of those rules was in their minds sinful in itself. One example was Sabbath. Mosaic law was given to Moses by God. Um, and it stated that on the seventh day you were to rest and not to do any work. Now, there are some specific prohibitions, but the Pharisees, after the Maccabean Revolt, were trying to squash theological liberalism, which tried to blend with idolatry, and they wanted to restore faithful practice to the law, uh, or faithful practice of the law, rather, to Israel. In Mishnah, the rabbis gave 35 major categories with hundreds of subcategories of labor, uh, different labors that was forbidden. Bidden. And they did the same thing that I think the fundamentalists did about, well, a little over 100 years ago when they responded to the theological liberalism of the Enlightenment period. Uh, their motives were right, but what came out of that was unnecessary bondage with the listing of thousands of rules to keep people from breaking God's rules. For the Pharisees, you could walk on the Sabbath, but you couldn't travel any great distance. So if a good Pharisee would maybe tie a rope around himself, that would be half the distance he could travel. So that way he would reach the end of the rope, 
and know he could come back and not get stuck not being able to walk any further and make it home. Today, Sabbath law forbids the use of electrical items. So no blenders, no coffee makers, whatever. Uh, or things like, for example, pushing a button in an elevator. That would be considered work. So even in this country, there are Sabbath elevators that just stop at every single floor. How awesome is that, right? Like, can you imagine the Empire State Building stopping at every floor? Um, but in Israel, people will use lights that run on timers. So that way they don't violate the Sabbath by flipping a switch or turning a, a switch. There are prominent rabbis now who are saying that Sabbath elevators are also prohibited because it's still electrical work. And so now the debate is how faithful someone who lives on the 17th floor will be to take 17 flights of stairs in order to prevent working by pushing a button. This is, the, this is what they think. There, there are prominent rabbis who now um, say this. And the, the law of Tekum, uh, I think it's or Tekum, Tekum Shabbat, however you say it, it limits the distance one may travel beyond the city or town where one is spending Shabbat or Sabbath, regardless of the method of transportation. So on Sabbath, you're allowed to walk a little over a half mile outside your city limits, but not according to a map, unless there are more than 70 and two-thirds cubits between one house and the next, all contiguous housing is considered to be part of the same city. So I guess take a tape measure, I don't know. Mishnah actually contains 613 rules. And what happens to people when they are really disciplined about following all these special rules is that they tend to become self-righteous and proud. I think we've all been there. Check this out, Luke 18, 9 to 14. Luke 18 starting in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to, uh, up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisees prided themselves in strict adherence to the law. And they felt justified by the way that they lived. They felt that their lives were pleasing to God. As a consequence, they did not see their need of God to save them from their own sin, but of the injustices committed by others against them. The biggest one being the occupation of Israel by the Romans. They didn't readily acknowledge a great need of forgiveness because they were faithful followers of God. Sadly, that's the way I think many of us sometimes feel as well. We, we often fail to recognize our utter helplessness against our flesh and our desperate need for Jesus. We feel that the things that we are for and against and the things that we do and don't do are enough to satisfy God. And that's the context we entered today 
as the Pharisee is, invites Jesus into his home. Luke seven thirty six. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with them, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Now, there's no timestamp here. We can't be sure if this follows the previous section or not. What makes me think that this is more of a parenthetical point by Luke is that it goes along with the same theme as what was just said. So it's just kind of groups of events that go together um, thematically rather than uh, chronologically. Luke 7.31, this is what, uh, the end of what we looked at last week. It says, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Now, Jesus' complaint against the culture that was heavily influenced by the Pharisees is that they were busy measuring themselves against everyone else. Jesus pointed out the lifestyle of very strict limitations that John lived was far stricter than what the Pharisees insisted upon, and they said he was demon-possessed. But then... He freely Jesus freely exercised his liberties and lived a lifestyle that was not nearly as strict as the Pharisees, and they called him a glutton and a drunk. Jesus was pointing out that whether you live a life that is more like John's, more strict, or more like Jesus, more uh, exercising more liberty, more like he did in his humanity, you can be just as faithful. Uh, you know, we often we often say, well, we want to be just like Jesus, but some of, us, some of us might need more boundaries, like, like John had. It isn't, it isn't about matching the lifestyle of Jesus. It's about the faithfulness that comes from our hearts. You know, Jesus is saying both ways are good. At the time, we can assume that there were many Pharisees. Probably they were faithful to God because they followed the rules out of pure devotion. This is, this is probably true. And, and, and perhaps many of them not because they thought it made them better than anyone else. But many of them, they did feel that way. So here, we see a Pharisee inviting Jesus over. And the first question that we need to ask is why? And let me give you the correct answer. I don't know, right? There's, I don't know. Most people assume hostile intentions here, but keep in mind, Jesus kind of resisted the idea of going around acquiescing to every skeptical demand with something miraculous, right? He, he pushed back against that. So I think the Pharisee may have had some honest curiosities. He was still a devout Pharisee nonetheless, and Jesus accepted the invitation. He comes into this dude's house and lounges comfortably. Verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who is a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Tradition has it that this was a prostitute. I guess that's 
the first place our minds to go, go when we think that a woman, a sinner woman, woman who's a sinner, right? But we don't know us for sure. Uh, we, we only really know that she didn't live up to the standards of the Pharisees. We can assume it went deeper than that because I don't think the Pharisees normally had exceptionally harsh judgments on anything but the major sins most of the time. Sins like sexual immorality, uh, uh, criminal acts, traitorous acts against Israel, um, like tax collectors. She was likely a prostitute, but she could have been married to somebody that was considered a sinner. That could have stigmatized her. Also, it's possible, maybe less likely, that there was something else that categorized her as a sinner. In that culture, lives were lived out publicly. There, you didn't have a ton of secrets. It, it, people knew each other's business. Houses were built around this courtyard. So it was kind of this open courtyard, and then all these rooms would kind of go around that and would open up into the courtyard. And it would, even, it would be normal just to walk into somebody's house. You didn't go up to the ring doorbell and then push it and then wait for them to pull the app up on their phone uh, and you know, to see who it is and then decide whether to pretend not to be home or to text you to see what you need or maybe to get up, walk down the stairs, turn the deadbolt lock, undo the chain, turn the other lock, pull the handle and open the door. My sister was like this. She, she, she used to be. She, I, I think she, she'd forgotten how to knock at some point in her life. She would just kind of walk in fashionably late everywhere she went. Gina's here. The party can start. Just like that, you know. Um, but, but that would have been normal back then, um, maybe without the announcement. Can, can you imagine just walking into your living room after dinner and the neighbor's just laying on your couch in a robe, like watching your TV? Hey, bro. Like, right? Everybody, and everybody knew everybody's business. So although the woman certainly would never have received a formal invitation to the banquet, she could just walk in. The Pharisee also wouldn't have invited people that he knew would fraternize with her. But everyone would know who she was and what she was about. And again, she could just walk in. She wouldn't have to jimmy the lock or anything. Just boom, there she is. There's some debate. Uh, that this woman could have been Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. We can't really know that for sure. Um, and, and we really don't know when or where this took place, although I think most commentators don't believe she's Mary and they believe this took place up in uh, the region of Galilee. John 11, 1 through 12, though, says, Now a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So, we don't know. This could be, he could be saying, well, everybody knows the story that I'm going to tell in just a minute. Or it could be looking at something that happened in the past. We don't know. Because shortly before Jesus is arrested and crucified in John chapter 12, just one chapter later, it says this. Six days before Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard 
and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. And then we see an event in Matthew and Mark that's very similar. It takes place at the home of a leper by the name of Simon. Lots of things crossing over here. Uh, Mark, uh, Matthew, rather, 26 Verses 6 to 13, it says, Now when Jesus was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you've always, you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, whatever the gospel, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So like the account in John, this takes place in the last week of Jesus' ministry and also in the town of Bethany basically a suburb of Jerusalem. And so those three accounts, probably the same thing. Um, the account that's recorded in, in Mark 4, 3 through 9 is almost uh, verbatim to the account in Matthew. But neither Matthew or Mark named the woman, while the woman in John's account is Mary. None of the three stories is the woman identified as a sinner, um, and Mary is one of Christ's followers. Uh, the accounts in Matthew, uh, Mark, and John are likely the same event. But what takes place in Luke is, isn't the same event. The differences really can't be explained by assuming the different perspectives of different eyewitnesses. So my question is this, is this could it be the same woman? If, if Mary was in bad shape before she began to follow Jesus, when she came, she could have responded to him in that way as an expression of sorrow and repentance. Uh, and then later on uh, in uh, the other house, she may have been expressing thankfulness in Bethany. I'd say it makes that plausible as a fact that only John and Luke record a woman wiping his feet. Um, Matthew and Mark, uh, the perfumes poured on his head. Doesn't mean that his feet also were not washed or anointed, just that Matthew and Mark didn't record that. So we land on this being either two or three events, probably two events. It's possible for very similar things, though, to happen multiple times. And it could be that an event like this early in the ministry of Jesus could have set a precedent, and this could have happened multiple times by, from multiple different people. So I don't know how probable it is that, that this woman he, here in Luke is Mary, but I do like how well it illustrates the worship both in repentance and in faithfulness, or in uh, thankfulness, rather. Uh, regardless of how the accounts intersect, the woman here and Luke comes up behind Jesus. He's 
uh, he's lounging. She begins weeping profusely enough. Imagine this, uh, enough crying that the tears are actually soaking his feet and she's wiping it up with her hair. That's a lot of tears. She's also kissing his feet, which is even more an act of humility than it would be today. Uh, back then, the lowest slave would be the one that would be forced to wash the feet of people because feet would be pretty gross, pretty filthy. Uh, they walked everywhere. Uh, they had like sandals or something. Uh, I'm sure many barefoot and it was all dirt and animal droppings and stuff. It's not like you had a nice clean sidewalk that was hosed down every afternoon. Like it, it was, it was gross. There's just nothing clean about feet. In addition to bathing his feet in tears, wiping them with her hair and, and kissing them, she's also pouring expensive ointment or perfume on them. Now, what we don't know is whether her tears are of sorrow or joy. Is she repenting or is she thanking Jesus for deliverance? I think if we look at the plain text, it's probably repentance at this point because Jesus uh, won't be pronouncing forgiveness until later in the text here. But let's move on to verse 39. Now, uh, when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. David Garland said, Simon is unmoved by the woman's tears. Have you ever felt contempt for someone that you know is just kind of an overall awful person when they claim to become a Christian? I mean, think about that. Like, you know that God can change the darkest of hearts, but the first instinct is just kind of suspicion and contempt, right? Like, eh, time will tell, right? We think that way. It, I, I know I'm guilty. I, and we do that because we know that even though we have have been forgiven, we still kind of tend to measure ourselves against others, right? And we want to think that although we needed forgiveness, we somehow had enough merit in us that we were able to correct our course and follow Jesus. And he responded by forgiving us. We can be suspicious of people whose corruption has become their identity and suddenly they claim to be believers. And that's where this woman was. She was a known sinner. This Pharisee was offended by this woman's outrageous emotional display. It was more than just suspicion over how sincere she was. The language he uses here is highly pejorative. and might indicate that he felt that she may have even been hitting on Jesus and Jesus wasn't stopping her. A righteous person would not have a woman like this touching him according to the Pharisee. Here's a man who has a high social position and a woman who is a social outcast and they will end up highlighting two entirely different attitudes about grace. Philip Graham Riken said, one way to test our grasp of God's grace is to see how we respond to the people we think of as sinners. What we say about them, how we treat them, and, and what we do or fail to do to touch their lives with the grace of Jesus Christ indicate our true understanding of God and his grace. I said ouch when I read it. Riken also said, the love of Christ 
leads us to build relationships with obvious sinners we know. All too often we don't have the relationships with them at all, or if we do, our contempt for their sin shows through. They can tell what we really think of them, and this hinders them from ever hearing the gospel we want to give them. Some time ago, there was some significant police activity, several police cars in our parking lot here. That's a lot of action for Idlewild, right? There's a bunch of police cars out here, and there was a group of us praying in my office there. So I walked out and kind of closed the door. I, I just have like this protective instinct, like, okay, everybody, you stay here. I'm going to walk out, close the door, and check out, make sure you're safe. And I go out, and I talk to the, the sheriff sergeant out there, and, and he told me that everything was safe, and they, they had arrested a transient who frequents our parking lot because it's a nice, clean, shady place to rest. Um, okay, that's fine. Now, the next morning, I drove down to Marietta with Denise to have breakfast with some, some folks from Far Reaching Ministries. And later that afternoon, Pastor Clint and I had lunch at La Casita. And then when I went to put a bicycle in the back of my truck, in the bed of my truck, I opened the tailgate and this little glass pipe with a bulb at the end fell out of my truck. And there was somebody from the restaurant who was standing right there and so I instinctively looked down and I'm like, that's not mine. <laughs> that's, she asked what it was. And I said, ah, uh, I think that's a crack pipe, you know? And she, I, it turns out I think it's actually a meth pipe. I don't know the difference. I've never smoked either. But <laughs> I was shocked and I, I couldn't think of how that could have ended up in my truck and then it dawned on me so I, I gave this uh, police sergeant a call the guy I spoke with the day before and he said that the transient that he, they had arrested had made a few laps around my truck while they were chasing her um, and so he asked are you sure it's not yours so I said no I quit last week and he thought it was funny but anyhow earlier this summer I was working and I, I noticed Wayne's truck out here by the pavilion. So this is like six months later, right? I noticed Wayne's truck out here by the pavilion. I thought I'd just walk up and say hi to him. And Wayne's here. Who doesn't want to go say hi to Wayne, right? Um, and so I go up and, and as I walk up, I, I notice that Wayne is sitting with that same transient and I began to hear the conversation. And Wayne, he's, he's speaking with her with every bit of respect that he would give any of the rest of us. And he's telling her all about Jesus. <laughs> That's so cool. Well, so later I decided, you know, maybe I should let Wayne know a little bit more about this girl, you know. Um, turns out I didn't need to. He already knew. He was just treating her with the love of Jesus. <sighs> And he was teaching me something about grace in the process because of a place that mine... We tend to condescend to people oftentimes. And, uh, and that, was, that was huge. I was like, whoa, <laughs> I needed to see that. It wasn't just the woman that the Pharisee had a problem with either. That phrase, this man or this one, it seemed to express some sort of contempt for Jesus as well. I really don't know how this Pharisee felt about Jesus. He invited him to his banquet, so he certainly didn't have the same kind of disdain for him that he had for the woman. 
I think the Pharisee was curious. I, I don't think his intentions were overly hostile. But you see, the Pharisees were becoming increasingly suspicious of Jesus and thereby also more and more hostile toward him because he didn't fit their mold for a prophet or for Messiah, both of which he claimed to be. The Pharisee is probably conflicted. Jesus doesn't act like a good little Pharisee should. And he, is, he hasn't matched their understanding of what Messiah would look like at all. Since the Pharisees relied on meritorious allegiance to the law, they didn't really feel like they needed a savior to save them from sin. They didn't need Messiah to save them from sin. What they needed Messiah to save them from was Roman oppression. I, I think we sometimes feel that way too, don't we? Like we, we're pretty good. We're tight with Jesus. We're like this, right? We're cool. But we do need Jesus to deliver us from our political or our economic system or from the depravity in our culture or the public schools or electric bill, right? I, we're not of this world and we are looking for our Messiah to deliver us out of this world, which there's some truth to that, what he is going to do in the end. But what we fail to recognize is our own sinfulness that we need saving from because we're so concerned about the sin that we see in everybody else. And that was the problem of the Pharisees. And because the Pharisees did as Pharisees do, he measured his righteousness against other people. But what, when we do that, and let's face it, I think all of us have done it, right? When we do that, we never measure ourselves against Mother Teresa or Billy Graham, right? We measure ourselves against Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. <laughs> like, like <laughs> not that bad, right? Like, you know, <laughs> I'm not that messed up. You look at Phil Spector, you're like, yeah, I'm pretty good, right? Like, when we do that, we look pretty good, don't we? Right? And this is how the Pharisees, uh, or how this Pharisee rather, was able to think to himself, gee, what kind of prophet doesn't know what kind of girl this is? Jesus proved just what kind of prophet he was when he read the Pharisee's mind. Jesus has something to say that the, to the Pharisee that the Pharisee doesn't want to hear. But he's patient. And the first, the first impulse of this Pharisee is to call out the sins of this woman. But Jesus doesn't immediately out Simon as being self-righteous, does he? Instead, he, he patiently explains how grace works through the telling of a parable. He's teaching, not condemning. Look at this in verse 41 and 42. This is Jesus speaking. He says, a, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other owed 50. And when he could not pay, the pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Now, that's a pretty vague parable. So the interpretation relies on the context. And in this case, it's pretty easy. But it's important to note that Jesus is indicating his authority over moral debt here. This is something that the woman understood and the Pharisee didn't acknowledge. But it's also important to realize that Jesus is speaking of more than mere gratefulness. The one who is forgiven will agape more. That's the word used, right? There is a devotedness that comes with acknowledging the debt and forgiveness. 
And now the Pharisee understands this. Look at this in, 40, in verse 43. Simon answered, when I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. It doesn't take a prophet to figure out the answer to Jesus' parable. It's more of a rhetorical question. And, and really, if we look at it, the forgiveness was up to the one to whom the debt was owed. In the parable, the two people in debt didn't ask for their debt to be forgiven. It just says that they couldn't pay the lender, and the lender forgave the debt. That's all it says. I'm sure the Pharisee figured out by now that he is on the receiving end of an object lesson. And I wonder if he's still wondering how Jesus knew what he was thinking. So Jesus affirms the Pharisee and he continues the lesson. Verse 44. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has to wet my feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair. Or she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Now right here we go back to Simon's thoughts about this woman. Jesus is demonstrating that he knows exactly what kind of woman was touching him. And the parable also indicates that both the woman and the Pharisee are objects of the lesson and owed some level of debt. The woman wasn't trying to check off the boxes. She knew that that ship had sailed long ago. She was responding to the fact that every box had been checked. Every need she had was met by Jesus. She believed Jesus. We always act according to what we believe. And she demonstrated that very principle by falling on his feet and wiping her tears with her hair. Pharisees, on the other hand, were really good at checking off boxes, weren't they? Jesus proclaims forgiveness of the woman, indicating that the debt was actually owed to him. We see also in the metaphor that the lender took the initiative to forgive. It wasn't based on any action or request of the debtor. So Jesus' compassion on the woman was not because of her behavior. What she was doing was demonstrating faith in Jesus. She understood her faithfulness. And she understood who Jesus was. Interestingly enough, even though Simon the Pharisee had questions, he had de also demonstrated a belief that there was something special or important about Jesus. But he did not understand who it was he was really dealing with. Jesus is pointing, to si pointing Simon to the woman, and she's expressing devoted love toward him. And Jesus tells Simon that her, that her sins are forgiven. Look at the order Jesus gives. Forgiven much, love much. Forgiven little, love little. When it comes to forgiveness, you guys, we respond to God, not the other way around. The reality is that this woman realized her sinfulness while Simon did not acknowledge his own need for forgiveness. And he said to her, verse 48, 
your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? See, she was already trusting Jesus. And he proclaims a truth that was foreordained from the foundations of the earth to this woman. Your sins are forgiven. And it's actually given in the perfect tense. Your sins have been forgiven. Her sins were forgiven before she came to him. All of her sins, past, present, future. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption. That adoption is uh, like uh, a redemption, Right? to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved and if we jump a few verses ahead in Ephesians 1 to verse 11 it says in him we have obtained an inheritance that woman the sinning woman the nobody and a promise of an eternal inheritance in Christ Jesus. What's, what is the inheritance of God? What is, in Romans it says, co, calls us co-heirs with Christ. What is that inheritance? Everything. And it was hers. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In fact, Jesus himself said that those who come to him come because the Father has given them to him. Look at this in John chapter 6. John chapter 6, 37, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. The woman may still have been coming in sorrow and repentance, but even that, even that was a response to God's redemptive work in her life. She could not, have approached Jesus the way that she did had God not first changed her heart. Simon is faced with Jesus, who's now uprooting the entire worldview that had him measuring his morality against this woman and other people. Will he acknowledge his own moral debt and need for forgiveness? What are his guests thinking at this point? It doesn't seem like the guests are hostile. In fact, I would venture to guess that Simon may also not have been hostile. They're curious about Jesus. What gives Jesus the authority to forgive? It isn't like the prophets or the priests who might proclaim the forgiveness that God has promised. Jesus can actually do the forgiving because he is the God who has been sinned against and he has the authority over moral debt. 
He said to the woman in verse 50, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Finally, here, Jesus affirms a doctrine that is very old, but we've just given it a name. We call it justification by faith alone, or sola fide. It goes all the way back to Abraham, long before any of the Old Testament was written. We believe the oldest books were written by Moses, who comes long after Abraham. Genesis 16.5, or I'm sorry, 15.6 says this, and he believed the Lord and it counted to him as righteousness. In other words, his faith was counted to him as righteousness, justification by faith. And this woman came to Jesus in faith, expressing it through tears and sacrificing presumably expensive perfume. Her faith drove her devotion. Her faith drove her love for Jesus. And I think that we often forget that when we gather. I think that we come and we sometimes just go through the motions here. We stand up, sit down, sing the songs. And then we hope to learn something. We, it's often like sometimes just rallying the troops, right? We, we can sometimes feel like a club of like-minded people who share the same belief system. But how often do we walk through those doors back there and come here out of pure loving devotion for Jesus? When we come to our, into our church building here on Sunday mornings, why do we come? What is it that we sing and why? What are we thinking about the people around us as we look around? What about the people who at work refuse to acknowledge God in any meaningful way? How about my cousin who used to be a pastor at a solid Bible teaching church and left it a number of years ago and recently married another man? What about the Christians who say that they're deconstructing and they're really just evolving into amoral agnostics? How do we react when someone who has recycled the same sins over and over and over again comes weeping at the altar? Will we condescend to them or will we be reminded of our own sinfulness and fall in repentance? Will we understand that every one of us who knows Jesus has been forgiven much? Back in John, Mary was a follower of Jesus and she did the same thing at the feet of Jesus. And Martha expressed her devotion by working and serving and, and, and doing. And yet Jesus gave Mary the highest approval for her worship. I can't tell you how often I've caught myself standing there just comparing myself to others, trying to make myself feel good about myself. But David Garland said, the parable of the debtors blurs the line between sinners and the righteous. In other words, I'm no better. The only thing that separates me from an unrepentant sinner is forgiveness. Forgiveness. It's nothing I've done. It's only the work of Jesus. 
Lastly, how do we see the Christians who have different boundaries than we do? Do we appreciate their faith or we judge them and measure ourselves against them? Oh, I would never do that. Or, look, they don't even do this. If we understand what we've been forgiven of, we can only admit that our sins were many and his mercy is more. And our energy will not be in evaluating the people around us, but in loving much like the woman and expressing loving devotion for Jesus. We can do nothing to affect our salvation. We can only respond to what God has done in us. We aren't saved because we do good things. We do good things because we're saved. As we close in singing, let us reflect on this in our hearts. Are we busy comparing ourselves with others? Or do we recognize the gravity of the sin that God has forgiven us of? How is it that we will express our love and our devotion to God? Our holy, perfect God, we surrender our pride to you this morning. We were corrupt and hopeless, but you have applied your righteousness, the righteousness of your son Jesus to those of us who would repent and trust in you. you caused our identity to be righteous in Jesus. Forgive us for measuring ourselves against one another rather than recognizing our own sins and trespasses. Father, help us to see the broken people around us through the lens of your grace and love them as Jesus does. God, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you that there's no sin beyond your ability to freely forgive. And for those here who may have not repented, who may not know you, God, I pray that you would reveal to them the gravity of your grace, your mercy, and your forgiveness, that they would see that there is no sin that they could have ever committed that is too weighty or too big for you to carry on their behalf. God, forgive us. Teach us to forgive. Provide for us and cause us to care for each other. Deliver us from the evil one and teach us, Lord, what it means to give and receive grace continually. God, we thank you for how great your mercy is. Help us to live merciful lives as we enter this week that you have given to us to honor you. And as we enter this mission field that is before us, as we step out of these doors in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.